me pone un, un épotes. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Dujay, with another amazing show for you. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because way too often we were overlooked or labeled as people. But this is no longer. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. We have another amazing show for you this afternoon. And before I introduce my guests, I want you to start thinking about the hospitals and the drama that dominates TV. This is what we mostly understand when we think about the efforts of our doctors in the trauma center. Today, Dr. Stephen Cohn pulls back the curtain and explains the critical role of trauma surgeons and what they do to save lives every day. He can also talk to you about the operating room and sometimes even the ER. And we can ask him different questions about it to understand trauma at these different levels. Our guest, Stephen M. Cohn, is a former surgeon in the U.S. Army Medical Corps in Desert Storm, past Division Chief of Trauma and Surgical Critical Care at Yale University School of Medicine, past Medical Director of the Ryder Trauma Center in Miami, past Chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center, and current practitioner in New York City. He's also lent his knowledge and expertise as an educator and researcher, having produced more than 300 scientific publications, edited eight surgical textbooks, and conducted extensive funded research, which participated in many professional organizations. He's also served as an editorial reviewer for numerous journals, and he is the recipient of Teacher of the Year awards in Boston University, University of Massachusetts, Yale, and Northwell Health and Lifetime Achievement and Education Award from the University of Miami Department of Surgery. He is the author of an amazing book, All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Center. Dr. Cohen, welcome. Thank you, Jules. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's just get started. Please introduce yourself. What are you currently working on? What, what am I working on? I, I'm still a full-time uh, general and trauma surgeon at um, St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. Um, I also um, am putting together uh, a new surgical textbook, um, uh, evidence-based medicine uh, in acute care surgery and trauma. And I'm getting ready to write another book to follow this, this current one, uh, a little bit different. But uh, um, it's a pleasure to be on your show. The pleasure is ours. Can you tell us how you were drawn into this work? Sure. So, you know, it is not uncommon for people to try to figure out what it is that I do. Uh, you know, someone will ask you what you do. You say, I'm a general surgeon. I do a lot of trauma. Or I'm a trauma surgeon. And they go, so you work in the emergency room. And you say, no, no. That, the emergency room doctors, they're critical people. They take care of everything that comes into the ER, asthma attacks, heart attacks, strokes. Our job is we're, we're general surgeons and we take care of catastrophe. And that catastrophe is anywhere in the hospital. So 
Um, if sure, if someone rolls their car or uh, falls from a great height or gets hurt on a work site, uh, they come rolling in the trauma center. They're going to activate a trauma the trauma team, and we go down and direct that that uh, care. And then if they need to be operated upon, we operate on them and take care of the ICU also. But in addition, if there's a disaster that occurs anywhere in the hospital that requires a, a surgical skill, like someone loses their airway in the medical ICU, or um, someone's bleeding to death uh, in labor and delivery after delivering a, a child, a, a baby, uh, they call us, we're the responders. So anywhere that it's a catastrophe, uh, you're going to find the the trauma surgeon lickety split. You know, oftentimes as visitors of the ER room, I have seen firsthand when there's a flux of people running at a high pace, it, whether it is a car crash, a gunshot, something critical. This is what the trauma care center is about or the trauma unit is about. Yes. So uh, I'll, I'll give you one kind of insight here. There's a sense that there's a running, there's a excitement. That's not the case. Actually, we're the calm person in the storm. We have to be the calm person in the storm. So when a couple of people come in that are, you know, in, in, hurt, let's say a, a car goes off the road and hits a pedestrian on the sideline, um, those people are in, you know, they're in rapid need for, for resuscitation and help, and we all converge on them. But it's very important that certainly the leader of the team, the leaders of the team stay very calm because that everyone takes their cues from the, the person in charge. So whether it's in the emergency department on a bad trauma or up in the operating room, uh, our calmness is, is essential. So uh, TV kind of puts it, makes it sound like everybody's screaming and yelling and it's a lot of excitement because of course they're trying to keep you entertained, but it, 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 it's not that level of kind of excitement usually. We try not to make it exciting. Well, can you walk us through a situation where you and your team are pulled into a crisis where now surgery happens? How does that process happen? Okay, so there are a set of criteria, uh, uh, you know, like a list of situations where we are notified by the emergency department uh, that there is a trauma either that just arrived or that is coming in. And those um, look at two different things. One is what is the person's current state of, you know, stability. So physiologic state. So if their heart rate is elevated or blood pressure is low or they're not talking, they're in a coma, and after an injury, we're going to get called because they're at very high risk for having a, a bad outcome. And the other is the mechanism. So certain things, if you fall from a great height, if you're hit by a car, if you're shot in the torso, um, you're going to get, those are some of the kinds of things that uh, are on that list of, 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 uh, of subjects, or let's say of the types of injuries that they're going to activate us. Now, trauma is about a team effort. Uh, the trauma surgeon is just one of the members of the team. The, uh, most uh, the trauma centers have uh, a, a nursing contingent, anesthesia. They have, uh, you know, a respiratory therapist, the, the radiology tech who, who comes in there to take the x-rays. There's just, there's a whole bunch of people that all converge along with security. And there's often some members of the of uh, New York's finest that are there 
to just sort of keep everything under control. And, and then everyone has kind of a role and we all go through method, um, methodically to assess the patient and decide what they need. Um, sometimes it's a situation where imagine someone, you know, let me just say one other thing. <clears throat> People have a sense that we somehow know what the injuries are. Uh, I always try to explain it to folks. Imagine that you stuff the patient into a burlap bag and five guys beat them up with a baseball bat. And then you pull them out of the bag, put them on a stretcher and roll them in the door. What are the injuries? I have no idea. So it's a, it's a, we have a, a kind of a standardized approach that are called the ABCs where we look at their airway, whether they're breathing, how good their circulation is. We assess their, their, uh, you know, roll them back and forth to look at uh, for any signs of injury because it's very uncertain. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, year, this is years ago, more than 20 years ago. Um, we were called uh, ahead of time that the helicopter at this institution I was at was bringing in a guy from a car crash that was badly hurt. And the story was that this guy was, uh, you know, driving a car that crashed at 60 miles an hour on the highway. So they bring this guy in and he's like covered with blood and uh, uh, he's not breathing and he's comatose. So we put a tube in him uh, in his uh, breathing. We're breathing for him and we start giving him fluid. And all of a sudden he starts spraying blood. I'm sorry if I'm graphic here. He starts spraying blood out of the side of his neck. We're going mm -hmm. like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out that this guy, when we found out later, was driving in the front seat of a car next to this woman who was married to the guy in the back seat and the guy in the back seat suspected the two of them of having an affair and he took out a knife and started stabbing the guy who was driving the car at 60 miles an hour mm. so you don't know what you're going to get and the, the point is that we have to be nimble and you know have a clear mind and it's sort of like you know captain sully landing a jet on the uh, on the hudson except it's like two time, two or three of them at once, and we just have to keep our head clear. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that story, and I wanted to bring it from a family perspective. When a scenario such as this happens, and we are alerted, there's a family member, we get bits and pieces just like you do. So sometimes when we do you know, appreciate the work, but we also approach the doctors in a hostile state. And we're coming in from a place of, you know, it's a car crash it's something. And now here's a scenario where probably we don't have all of the facts. And that's why sometimes when surgeons or doctors or anyone from the field comes out and they're very calm, people think that they don't care, but they're being very calm because you see this just as you said, three to four times a day. This is just amazing to like think about. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the level one, which is the like the highest level of the uh, trauma care or sure. like a level two on facility. I right. know that there were about looking at your book, there was about 6 million of those and all this trauma and these victims are sent to a single adult pediatric or like right. level trauma center. That's in right. Baltimore. Could you share right. with us? Sure. So basically what I, what I, I remember what you're talking about. Um, so we have uh, a couple of different levels of hot, that are very sophisticated regional centers that provide trauma care. Some are called the level one centers. Some are called the level two centers. The main difference between a, a level one and a level two is research 
there's more research done in a level one. And there are a few things that are done at level one that aren't done in a level two. Okay. So level one is sort of like we take care of everything. Level two is that there might be a, a couple of things that would be sent to a level one center. Okay. But um, what I was talking about, what you mentioned was that uh, there are some states that have regionalized care so that uh, the state of Maryland with 6 million inhabitants, they, they, all the adult major trauma, all, you know, more than just, I twisted my ankle, the bad trauma goes to Maryland shock trauma at university of Maryland in Baltimore. Um, other, other areas, there's a kind of a glut of trauma of trauma centers in Boston, which has got like, you know, 700,000 people and eight and a half million in the Metro area. They've got six level one trauma centers and I think one level two. So they're, they're, they don't have the concentration of resources that they do in Maryland. And I think that while you can have uh, high level care at six places that don't see that much trauma or as much trauma, you're probably going to be replicating, you know, and uh, it's going to be costly. So, so I think it's ideal to have a few very high level trauma centers and a good uh, transportation network uh, but that doesn't work everywhere. In New York City, uh, there, you know, uh, there's not as much trauma, fortunately, because you can't drive your car very fast. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it, it, it's such a population density. Uh, but um, uh, you know, there are there are quite a few trauma centers that that have achieved uh, you know the, the highest high level verification, maybe more than you need. But you also can't fly people around in helicopters like you can in Maryland because of all the buildings and everything else. So um, maybe I'm not answering your question, but I, I uh, well enough, but, but there's the highest level of care level one, there's the next level down level two. And then and that's pretty much it for trauma centers. Mm. And at each one of these trauma centers, there's a, there's a everything. There, there are two things that are very important. There's a trauma, um, entity, which means, you know, nurses that are specially trained, doctors that are specially trained, you know, there's all the imaging radiologists and everything else that we need. And, uh, and then there's also a sophisticated uh, pre-hospital, you know, ambulance system to bring patients there. That's very important. And then lastly, they have a, a very detailed system of checks and balances so that every single patient is evaluated. Um, uh, assessed for the quality of their care, and it, it has to be reviewed uh, every three years at a national level. So the quality of the care is very, very consistent and very good across the country at level one and level two centers. Well, you talked earlier about teamwork and how this plays out, and you shared a story of a specific client that you had to help and didn't know where the client came from. Can you help our listeners understand some of the challenges that you and your team are facing when you're making these tough decisions related to the operating table? Now you're there, you have some sort of set plan, something is working out or something is happening. What are some of the challenges that you and your team kind of have to face in real time? Okay, so like the operating room, we're talking specifically operating yes. room. Mm -hmm. The problem in the operating room is, of course, we don't know what the injury is. Let's say someone comes in and they have a gunshot wound or they've been stabbed or they were in a bad car wreck and their blood pressure is low. And we know that they have fluid in their belly, but we don't know what it's from. 
So we're going to have to go in and explore the unknown territory here, looking for evidence of an infection, or I'm sorry, of, a, of an injury. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you're obviously looking for bleeding and you're looking for holes in organs, like your intestines or something like that. But you have to do it in a, in a rapid fashion, particularly if they're bleeding quickly, you know. And the operating room is another example where the team is so important. In fact, if you don't have a good anesthesia team, it doesn't matter how good the surgeon is because that team is responsible for giving all the blood and blood products that are required while you're trying to stem the tide. Um, to put it in context, uh, a couple of years ago, I had a woman, this is an extreme, extreme case, who was in a very bad car crash, uh, high, highway speeds, and she came in with some members of her family who, who were also badly hurt. And we took her, we had to open up her chest and cross clamp her aorta just to get her up to the operating room, which in blunt trauma is very unusual. And then in the operating room, we found that she had a very, very bad injury um, to the main vein that goes uh, from the intestines into the liver called the portal vein. Mm-hmm. Now, most people don't survive this injury. And, but we had the world, we had the A team in anesthesia there. And they gave this lady 150 units of blood in about an hour, which is mm. this huge amount of blood. I mean, normally, you know, 20 units is considered a massive amount of blood. And we gave her over 100 units in an hour. And it was, it was enough to allow us to get her off the table, stabilize her in the ICU, bring her back. And we brought her back three times that night to do more and more, you know, whatever she could take because she was so, so, so sick. And she was back on her treadmill a year later. I mean, it was an amazing, but it was only accomplished. I mean, yeah, you know, the surgeons did our job, okay? But it didn't really matter if anesthesia wasn't all over it. I mean, they just did it. Uh, such a spectacular job. So the team in the operating room is, you know, a circulating nurse, an operating room tech to hand out the instruments, and then the anesthesia team, which in this case was a couple of them, and also someone running down to the blood bank and bringing back coolers of blood, because that's a huge amount. So everyone has to basically think of it like we're a quarterback on a football team, and everybody's Mm -hmm. got their role, right? And so, you know, we're you know, handing off the ball and someone runs with it. And if, if any member of that team fails, uh, the patient has a bad outcome. You know, first and foremost, again, I know you have heard this numerous times. We thank you for your service. We thank you for all of the work that you do. And there's no wonder kids, when they're growing up, what are you going to be when you grow up? A doctor. We just don't know where. I just want to be a doctor. Your work at Desert Storm. Talk yeah. about this. Because there's a lot to be said about this area. And, you know, within your book, there's a beautiful quote that says, he who wishes to be a surgeon should go to war. Talk to us about that. Well, I'll tell you, that quote comes from Hippocrates. Mm -hmm. So that's about 3,000 years old. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's interesting. Uh, uh, You know, my father was a medic in World War II. And uh, he came back and... Uh, was able to go to uh, become a family doctor. And um, when I finished, I never had any med- uh, uh, military requirement, but when I took my first job, uh, all of my senior guys, all the senior surgeons that I worked for, 
they were all former military. Mm -hmm. And, and I said, you know, I have time and I should give back and I teach trauma for a living. So I'll teach that in the military. I didn't anticipate that 18 months later, I'd get activated along with all the other general surgeons to go to desert storm. But, you know, here, you know, less than two years later, I find myself on a transport to Saudi Arabia and uh, I'm out in the desert for six months. And uh, fortunately, in that conflict, unlike Afghanistan and Iraq, we didn't have a lot of casualties. Most of what we took care of were Iraqi casualties, mm -hmm. a lot of them, but it still wasn't, it, it wasn't allied casualties, so that was good. And, uh, and most of the Iraqi casualties were doing well too. So um, uh, uh, fortunately, you know, one of the things that that, uh, that accomplished was it uh, allowed me to uh, get sort of involved in military medicine. I learned quite a bit about military medicine. And uh, uh, after some years later, I went down to Miami and we started the uh, Army Trauma Training Center. They had one there. The Air Force was at Maryland Shock Trauma and the uh, Navy was at uh, LA County. Mm -hmm. And uh, we worked uh, closely with the Army setting up this. So, so basically for Iraq and Afghanistan, all of the surgical teams, the forward surgical teams, would come and train with us and then get deployed. So I did that for a number of years. And then when I went to San Antonio, I worked as a consultant to something called the ISR, which is the Institute of Surgical Research, which is where a lot of the combat casualty research is done to try and understand how to have better outcomes. And I worked with them for a long time. So I've had the pleasure of helping to train a lot of of really excellent surgeons who've gone on to serve the country and now honestly run trauma centers all over the country and you know run critical care fellowships and trauma programs and everything so um so the military experience was a really good one ultimately uh now tell us just a little bit about that is like you're saying i had to train myself almost to be a military trauma you know um surgeon is that is that different from being a trauma care surgeon no, 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 no. I, I maybe I, I misspoke. Um, I'm not saying that it was. I, I'm saying what I did for a living already was combat casualty, re, uh, uh, combat mm -hmm. casualty care. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there's some differences between what you experience in, in the battlefield, in terms of the intensity of the injuries and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it's it's basic same principles. And so, so what? Yeah. So my sorry. So my question is, is the mindset different that you're at a you're now deployed? You're at a different location. Maybe that's what I'm trying to ask. Oh, now yeah. you're at a different mindset. This is not the hospital. You have some equipment. You probably don't have everything that you're used to. How yeah. is that? OK, it, it's well, OK, it's very different because you have limited resources. For example, we have sort of unlimited blood transfusion resources in certainly in urban centers in the United States trauma centers. There's a lot, thousands of units available. Um, in the war zone, you're going to have, you know, 50 units, 100 units. What You're going to have a, a, a small amount of blood available, which is important in trauma because that's what they're doing. They're lo losing blood. And you also may have some limits in, in the capabilities. You may not have a neurosurgeon or uh, an orthopedic surgeon or whatever. So, but here's an interesting factoid. Um, a lot of people in Afghanistan and Iraq survived that never would have survived in any other war. 
because the system was set up very brilliantly by a group of individuals where they created not just the ability to go from a battle aid station or frontline injury you know, management to a hospital like they would say in Korea or Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But then they could be sent all the way back to Landstuhl, Germany. At one point, I got a chance. One of my old fellows was the chief of surgery there and invited me to come help for a couple of weeks. And they were getting people nine hours, 10 hours after injury in Afghanistan and Iraq flown into Landstuhl in Germany, which is the Ramstein air base there. Hmm. They'd get managed for a couple of days, stabilized, and then flown all the way back to the United States for, for more care. So within, you know, like 24, 48 hours, 72 hours, these devastating injuries are back home or at least at the highest level hospital, you know, in Germany there. Um, so, you you know, they, they were surviving where, you know, in that would never have happened in, hmm. in uh, other conflicts. So, you know, yes, there are differences, but they did a lot to make up for that. And every day there was a phone call and on the phone call was the folks in Iraq and Afghanistan in the front, front, frontline hospitals, talking mm-hmm. to the guys in Germany, talking to the guys in D- Washington, D.C. or in San Antonio, where that whole continuum were communicating about badly injured folks, how they were doing and what they needed and, you know, the movement. So, um, but in terms of the specifics of care, it's fairly simple with a one with one exception being obviously in the military situation, you could get a whole bunch of people really in, in a really short period of time, sort of like a peak and valley. Yeah, You're see, You could see that in certain centers, I've seen that, but it's less common fortunately, in the civilian world, that you get a mass casualty, even though we do see it too often in the United States. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your book, All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit. What do you want our listeners to capture from this book? Okay. Um, First, I want them to understand what it is that occurs in the trauma center. What are the the realities of it? Uh, I want them to get a better understanding of how much of trauma is avoidable uh, because it, uh, one of our main um, one of our main uh, objectives as trauma center folks is to prevent injuries uh, rather than get really good at taking care of them we, we'd love it if people wore helmets when they rode around on electric mopeds mm-hmm. our whole icu in my hospital is filled with guys who didn't ride, who have devastating brain injuries, devastating head injuries, because they weren't wearing a helmet. Mm. Um, So much of what we take care of is, you know, Groundhog Day. It's just over and over the same thing. Same thing it was 30 years ago, maybe Mm. with a few new spins. Mm -hmm. So I would love for people to understand what the information is that shows that things can be prevented. Mm. And, And then I'd like, you know, us maybe as a society, this is a pretty highfalutin objective, to really think about, you know, uh, you know, what we can do as a, as a society to avoid some of these things, maybe attitudinally change them. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, um, drinking and driving is a good example of that. You know, why is that still happening? Mm. You, know, you know, that it, it's just as bad as it was 30 years ago, despite all these campaigns, it's just as bad. It mm. still accounts for the, the majority of vehicular deaths are alcohol related. 
And, you know, we can build a, we can put a breathalyzer on every ignition. I mean, there's things that, that you can do very, very easily to avoid this. I, I have some trauma surgeon friends who like to drink sometimes and they have a breathalyzer in their car and they do not drive if that breathalyzer is anywhere close to the limit. They mm. call an Uber mm -hmm. you know, or call a friend. So there, there are just a lot of things that we can do. The, the other objective of the book is to make people understand what, what the, how, let me say this right, how just like it's very difficult for them when their loved one ends up in the ICU, it's very difficult for us to build trust with them. So that, you know, if you were to, if you were to need a, a, a hip replacement, Jules, or, or you needed a, a kidney transplant, you'd have a whole relationship with your surgeon and he or she would talk to you multiple times and you have this whole thing and you, you and your whole family prepare yourself because, you know, we're going to, you know, dad's going to have his hip, his knee replaced and, and he's going to be out of commission for X period of time. And everybody's all prepared and they know the risks and benefits, right? Mm -hmm. when you roll your car. When you roll your car, there's no planning going on. You just go to whatever the nearest trauma center is and some strange person in scrubs or a white jacket sticks their head in your face. And the next thing is you're in the intensive care unit and some stranger is walking out talking to the family. And you as a social worker know that they're, they're not positively inclined. They don't know, you know, who's responsible for this. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. You know, they, so I call it the trust Olympics. And we're always trying, you know, we're, we're failing because we walk out, we try to introduce ourselves. Family's already angry, upset, naturally, because someone just lost a leg and they're, they're, they got a bad brain injury. And who is this guy? I don't know you from nothing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, and, and sometimes, the, uh, you know, it's, it's not even an injury. Uh, sometimes it's a bad stroke. And we're trying to explain to a family how mm -hmm. we either need to, you know, withdraw, you know, do a tracheostomy or withdraw care. I mean, there's aren't too many other options and they can't make a decision, you know, and they, and there's a real lack of trust. So, you know, you bring out so many parts to this and I'm trying to unpack this in so many ways, but let's just start with your, in your line of work, this is not planned but there's a lot of prevention that we can do. And if you're listening to your response, the most safest way, if you're some sort of rider with the bike, be careful where your helmet. If you think you're gonna hang out and you don't have a designated driver, think about what those consequences are. And many a times you're not the person drinking. There's a, someone else who's driving another vehicle. So making it even worse is understanding your role in some of these areas and taking chances, passing this guy, he looks like he's swerving, let's wait. There is so much to think about that piece, but I'm also thinking about the gratitude piece. Just most recently, just had a show talking about gratitude. And when we're going to these facilities, but yeah, we don't know the providers. We don't understand why our family member, why were we chosen? Why did this happen? There's a lot that's connected to grief in many ways where we're going in having to blame someone you hear the words lawsuits and you're going to hear from my lawyer and all of these things i want our listeners to understand that when you are seeking service 
this is not a place where you're going to show a receipt and receive some sort of discount. This is people's lives that we're talking about. So I think if we educate ourselves on how we approach each other, I think we could problem solve more. And just to take it deeper, are there ways that the hospitals can invest more money into providing workshops for our communities where the virtual maybe in person and not leave it up to patient relations where there's people not having the answers that family members want to know, but maybe they get a gist. This is what your stay at a trauma center may or may not look like. This is what to expect if you run into a situation such as this. Many a times the ER is one place, but when we're talking about trauma centers, we're talking about a specialty. So I want our listeners to pay attention to your answer in that we need to love each other and work together. And just talking about teams, and we were talking about this prior to this, talk to us about the role of the social worker on your team. Okay. Um, so I've had the pleasure, uh, and, I'll, and I'm going to use that term, of in some institutions, we get to know our social worker, they're like family. Other institutions, they're a little bit more uh, distant. And by that, I don't mean it's not about their personality. It's just the way it's, things are set up, mm. that that there's like a different social worker that covers the trauma service every day. That's different from when we have one dedicated to our service. And that's clear. And, and all the social workers are with us. They, they they would love to be dedicated. It's It's sort of the structural planning of the institution, okay? Um, uh, we always look at the social workers, they're like gold. If we could have one dedicated to our service, all of a sudden everything works better. At mm -hmm. one institution I was at, um, our team, uh, the nurses, uh, we had a group of nurses that were our quality, you know, uh, program managers and things like that. They lobbied for like a year to have a, a dedicated trauma social worker on our service because we knew how important it was. And find, we wanted them just for a month, just a trial, just give us for a month. Okay, we just want it for a month. Um, so we finally, they finally persevered and we got someone who we didn't even know. So it wasn't like a designate, we didn't get Babe Ruth, you know, we didn't get like the, the, the home run hitter. We just got a good person, right? Was assigned to our service ended up only being on our service for nine days for nine days in that nine days this woman decreased our census by half and decreased the average length of stay by like half in nine days it was like this is unbelievable and that's what i and, I, and i've seen that at multiple institutions with, with when they they gave us someone and sometimes it's also you know you get an extraordinarily good of anything, extraordinarily good social worker, obviously they, they, they totally kill it, but people don't understand who, uh, the impact of the social worker specifically on trauma, because think of it this way, grandma falls down the stairs, she bumps her head, she breaks a couple of ribs and she breaks her hip. So she has rib pain, a little bit con uh, concussion, she's a little off and she has her hip. So the, the orthopedists take her to the OR usually within 24, 48 hours. They give her, they fix her hip. Physical therapists are getting up and walking her. We need to get her now to a rehab center because both for her mental state and her breathing, and she's 83 years old. And, and while 
when she gets to the rehab center, they're going to give her four to six hours of physical therapy every day. She's going to get better. She's going to get home in uh, 10 days. She's in the hospital with a social worker, worker trying to get her and her family information, the insurance company's information, the social, the rehab center's information, and they're fighting the battle with, not with, against everybody, but for the patient for, you know, five to seven days before we can get that person placed. It's often the case that people spend longer waiting for their rehab placement than the hospitalization would have actually taken. Mm. All right. And and then you multiply that out and you end up with, often the case, half the patients on our service are waiting for their rehab placement. You know, for me, shout out to all the social workers and on this platform, we built this so that people can know that we were more than just, we are more than just social workers. Here right. you're hearing Dr. Stephen Cohen talk about family, what we can do as a team. And this is for our listeners who are trekking off to become social workers who are probably in the field. Listen up to all of the great things that we are able to do as we change lives in this great world. There is so much to talk about, but tell us a little bit about the potential of burnout and having to do this work for so long. What do you do for self-care in order to keep yourself animated and engaged in this kind of work? All right. So that, that's a really good question. One of the things that that it's a big uh, topic in, in our area because unlike any other field of surgery, we take our call in the hospital. So we're not at home fielding calls and then making a decision to go in sometimes. We actually typically spend the night in the hospital. So we're there for 24, 30 hours sometimes. And um, if you do that five or six times a month, it doesn't sound that bad except the day after you're on call, if you have a bad night, that's lost. So it's like a third of your life that's totaled out. Mm. Uh, that can that could wear on you. Um, and so, you know, we like to keep the, 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 the volume, I'm sorry, keep the number of surgeons on the faculty at a level where you're not finding yourself on taking too much call because then you become a crazy person. Right. Mm. And ultimately, you you burn out. Um, at another institution, I had a chief of vascular surgery that worked for me. The guy was absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. he, he did twice as much as the average vascular surgeon across the country. You know, they have these uh, measurements of work called RVUs. And a normal vascular surgeon would do like, uh, let's say, 9,000 RVUs a year. He was doing 20,000 RVUs. Mm. Huge volume. He got everything done that I asked him to do. He, you know, research, teaching. I, I would go to him and I'd say, you're going to have to slow down. You're going to burn yourself out. No, no, I've got this. I, I need to do this for my division so that everybody else can be successful. He was just for all the doing everything for the right reason. He was also really tough. So while a normal human would have burned out in five years, he lasted like 10 or 12. And then mm. he said, that's it. And that's what you want to avoid. You want to avoid your best people basically just burning out to nothingness. But it's a it's a real problem in medicine. Because uh, What do I do? I do a lot of sports. I work out every day. I play the drums in a band. Um, I have a fantastic family that is supportive and, and you know, is constantly stimulating me uh, 
my brain. And so with, for me, it's, it, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it works cause I've got good balance, but if you don't have good balance, this job will chew you up and spit you out. Hmm. For me, I wanted to also ask Dr. Khan about spirituality, and I'm going to read one of your quotes from your book, Rene Larice, 1879, 1955. Every surgeon carries about him a little cemetery in which from time to time he goes to pray, a cemetery of bitterness and regret, of which he seeks the reason for certain of his failures. Now, does spirituality have a place during, after, or before for yourself, or maybe for some team members? Have you seen that? And, and is that okay? I think, well, certainly people are, people can have spirituality within themselves. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not, you know, we're going to drop to our knees and pray for a good outcome in the middle of an operation, I think that's... <laughs> Not something that, uh, you know, we have time to do. Okay. Right, right. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't think there's a, a lot of appealing to, for divine intervention. You know, we're kind of, um, I wouldn't say robotic, but we're, we're uh, focused on, on the changing status of the patient while we're taking care of them mm -hmm. and, and on the, um, um, uh, the, the fact that we have to remain nimble and perceptive of what what is going on and doing the what I always say is doing the most conservative thing. So uh, what I think that individual was talking about as much as anything is that that all of the the bad outcomes that have ever occurred. I mean, I would say that there have been very few bad outcomes that have been related to my complicity complicity but i try to learn from bad outcomes you know i may do what i consider the standard of care in fact we used to say that uh when i was in one center well you did everything right according to the book and the person mm -hmm. had a bad outcome what can we do different next time and that's how you creatively change the care and and things have changed a lot in the 40 years or so that i've been doing this mm -hmm. There's so much change. I have a whole talk that I give on, it's called, it's all about dogma because it's, you know, it's a huge list of all the things that were absolutely the way we did things unquestionably when I was in my residency that were absolutely wrong 20 years later. Mm. And you can imagine 40 years later, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to constantly reevaluate stay on top of what the latest evidence-based medicine science is, you know, and, uh, and uh, uh, adapt and learn. And we can't be so rigid that we, uh, we can't learn. Now, you can't be paralyzed by your mistakes. You know, when you watch the NFL and a guy gets up and throws an interception, mm -hmm. you gotta, he's going in the next, the next uh, series, right? Not right away, but the next time they get the ball and he's got to stand up there and throw a pass again. You can't be paralyzed by the fact that last time the ball got tipped and intercepted. So <clears throat> trauma surgeons have to be like that. They have to be, you know, um, able to have a small rear view mirror. You know, you look back and you say that this wasn't a good outcome, but I got to carry on because I've got two more trauma patients rolling the door right now. Mm -hmm. Well, you do so much. You've, you've got this research side of you. You've actually done the residency. You've done these things. 
of them all, all the places that you ventured, what do you love most about your job? Good question. So I asked myself that question of maybe 10 years ago. I said, what are the things that I can't live without? Okay. I mean, if I, if I, I mean, obviously I want to take care of patients. I like to operate. Okay. Uh, and I realized that I could not be without residents to teach and students to teach that that was the fundamental thing that if I, if I had to just operate and, and believe me, you recognize that only about, about 90% of the surgeons out there in private, private sector in the United States, only about 10% are in the quote academic sector. And I realized if I, if I didn't have residents to teach and work with that, that made me look forward to going to work. Mm. And so, uh, for me, it's being an educator, a clinician and an educator. The research, I love doing the research. I, I'm, I, I like to think I'm proficient at it and I continue to do it because it's a way that I can keep making things better. You know, when, when we do everything right three times in a row and we have a bad outcome because, you know, uh, that's the standard of care, but it doesn't result in a good outcome, then you mm -hmm. have to sort of think outside of the box. I'll give you an example. Some years ago, um, they made seat belts. Maybe you remember this. They made seat belts in two pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, so you could put the, you didn't have to wear the black part. You could just let the shoulder thing snap in for sick, particularly on the passenger side. Mm -hmm. And, um, we used to see a lot of people with bad, bad, bad liver injuries because when the car stopped suddenly, the shoulder thing without the lap band would just cut through the back of your liver and you'd come in bleeding to death. Mm. All right. So two things occurred. One, one of my partners was involved in something called the siren network, which was this really, um, uh, uh, well funded, uh, national group of about six or eight trauma centers across the country that would go out to the scene of a car crash and analyze what the crash, what happened in the crash and look at what the injuries were the person had and then put them all together and say, could they redesign all the cars in a different way? And they did do a lot of car redesign. And they started to realize that these seat, the fact that the seat belts were in two pieces were leading to these terrible injuries. And they changed that function and they eliminated that injury. The other thing that happened is we developed an animal, uh, an animal uh, model of liver injury. And we figured out by using some special kinds of bandages, fibrin glue kind of things, and, and uh, quick clot, there, there are different kinds of these special bandages that could help induce um, uh, a clotting in bad liver injuries. So mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, it's, what do they say that uh, having this terrible problem led to a bunch of solutions that are applied across the board to other injuries too. Mm -hmm. But Research is really important and I like doing it, but I, I have to be able to be able to teach. I have to be able to teach. You know, speaking of this, and let's talk a little bit about diversity in your line. It's almost understood that a doctor is a male. This is how just people are just thinking, but I want to big up all of the women who are out there, doctors who are doing their thing, changing this world as we know it. How have you seen, as you look at the landscape of diversity, how many trauma surgeons are females now? How many are there of other races? Are you seeing a trend in changes there or has it just been status quo, just males dominating and so on? 
Well, when I went to medical school, half our class were women. It was 50-50. And mm -hmm. I think the rigors of a surgical residency in those days were not as attractive as they are today when it's a, a little bit more uh, uh, friendly, mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, being a resident I'm talking about. And what I see in general surgery is uh, uh, at least most of our classes are at least 50% female. Mm. So there's been a, a huge upswing in the number of general surgeons, remember trauma surgeons or general surgeons, that are, that are female, uh, that, that are, um, and uh, so I think, you know, that's, that, that for sure, um, they may not all be full professors yet because that would, you know, they may not, it, it, this, some of this change may not have allowed them to reach that level of seniority, but there are a tremendous number of very fine young uh, women uh, surgeons and trauma surgeons, no question. There are, uh, no, right now, there are a number of very uh, prominent uh, women in surgery, in trauma surgery, that are running trauma centers. Mm -hmm. uh, when, certainly, it's nothing like half, but they're there and they're well, they're increasingly well represented. And I think that's a that's an excellent thing. Why why shouldn't they be half? You know, um, I le recently left an institution where the chief of orthopedic trauma uh, was a was a woman. She was excellent. We all loved her. Uh, it's not a, you know, um, there just aren't that many um, uh, women in medical school that choose a surgical field, but it's increasing, mm. increasing. The other thing to realize is that in 1990, the number of graduating surgeons, chief residents, is almost the is about the same as it is now, and the mm -hmm. population has increased by increased by 25 percent. So we're becoming it's becoming a real shortage to have enough surgeons period uh, mm. the other other question you asked was about diversity and and that i haven't seen increasing in a in a way maybe we would we would all agree would be ideal mm -hmm. and part of that is i don't see that there's a huge number of of uh, underserved minorities in medical schools i don't think that there's been a big increase right uh like if you if the the population is X percent uh, Latin, uh, uh, Hispanic or uh, African-American or whatever. I, I don't see that that percentage um, being pre-med. Now, that may be out of choice because some years ago, a lot of people decided to go into business rather than medicine. I'm not, I, I don't even think I, one of my friends' sons went, was going to be pre-med and during college just said, you know, I'm going into business. I, I'm, I'm going to do computer stuff and go into business. And uh, that that was more appealing to him. And he's a really good guy. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't because medicine's unappealing. It was just because, you know, it's it's a it's a very long uh, course of study. Um, and people uh, have to have sort of a burning desire to do it now. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so, so anyway, so uh, some of it is the choice that people take. I mean, uh, maybe they want to get an MBA instead of spending the next 10 years of their life in training. Um, and, um, but there, there definitely is a, a, a paucity of underserved minorities in medicine and certainly in surgery. 
Well, you have seen a lot of changes throughout and visited many places. Tell us a little bit about the technology piece, the machinery that's being used now. Can you tell yeah. us how you've seen stuff, how it started and where is that now? Right. So I guess the biggest change for me was when laparoscopy came into being in, in the around 1990. Um, they started having 1990, 1991. There were, you know, covers of Time Magazine with people, you know, getting this new TV laparoscopic surgery with small incisions. And the public, you know, beat the drum and said, this is what I want to have, even though it wasn't necessarily faster, better or anything in some, in some kinds of surgery, but mm -hmm. they were, uh, they were strongly for this and the surgeons uh, learned how to do it. And then it became a thing. And uh, there's no question there are certain operations that uh, are much better for the patient when they're done laparoscopically. Classic is removing the gallbladder. Mm. Uh, um, subsequent to laparoscopy, which is basically using a fiber optic camera to you know, show you what's going on inside the abdomen or wherever, mm. <coughs> the chest, um, they started to control the movement of the laparoscope with robots, so-called robotic surgery. Mm. That's super, super expensive. Each one of those robots is over a million dollars. Mm. And there's not really any data to convincingly show that they have better outcomes than laparoscopic. So I would say the, the technology has gone ahead of the actual evidence showing its benefit. Mm. Okay. And of course, when every institution has got to have a robotic uh, machine that increases the cost of, of care. And um, it's, that has its own problems, but um, there's no question that uh, advancing technology has opened up opportunities to do different kinds of surgery that weren't done before or in ways that they were not accomplished before. Um, I'm a little bit of an old dog, so I still prefer doing things open. I use laparoscopy for gallbladders and appendectomies, but, um, and for a few other kinds of operations, but I, I, I don't depend on it. And I think the residents need to know how to do both. Mm. Your book, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit, I plan to have the link on my website. I was lucky enough to get a copy, which I'm reading. Really interesting about all the stories, history, everything that has to do with learning, your life, your journey. It's just beautiful in so many ways. Before we let you go, the floor is yours. Anything that you want our listeners to remember about you, to remember about the trauma unit, to remember about life itself, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I guess what I would say is people should realize that most of the things, most of the people that get injured, um, it's avoidable. And I would really like to not see you. I would like you to not look up from a stretcher and see my face when you're injured in the trauma center. So simple things, you know, uh, wear a helmet when you ride a bicycle or a motorcycle. Don't drink and drive. There's a whole nother conversation we can have about whether or not 
we should have guns everywhere. But um, but I really think that most of what what I take care of could be prevented um, with just uh, um, common sense. Well, thank you, Dr. Corn. And let's remember the the words. Very simple, but very important for us to be preventive. Think about the steps that keep us safe. Think about how we can help one another. And sometimes not meeting the doctor may be the best step. But remember that on this platform, we want you to remember that because we as people were labeled too often and we were overlooked, we created this platform because our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in, friends, to another He's Just a Social Worker show coming real soon to a town near you. We out. We out. Take care. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa, this is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. In memoria de mi madre, Matilde De La Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, Mamá. Te extraño mucho.